This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today, a new technology for heart transplants helping to overcome Australia's tyranny of distance. Family Counts, an important new Australian study into the genes that make us cancer, especially a particularly hard-to-treat malignancy. And in recent years, prescribing rates of medications doubled for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder for both children and adults. But even so, the rate of prescribing was still below what's thought to be the prevalence of the condition. Certainly, anecdotally, you hear of more and more adults being diagnosed and treated. But to what extent are those who really need help getting access to what can be expensive, high-quality assessment and appropriate care? Health Report producer Shelby Trainer has been investigating. You spend a lot of time looking at yourself being like, this doesn't seem hard for everyone else and I'm not stupid, so why am I struggling so much to get through day-to-day things or keep track of really basic tasks that I've been doing every week for years of my life? Shelby, just explain who Narika is. So Narika is a 34-year-old woman. Uh, She was diagnosed about a year ago, and she's been on medication for a year. She's one of the 1 in 20 Australians who have ADHD and one of the many adults who are now coming forward to be diagnosed after experiencing symptoms for much of their life. ADHD was seen as mostly a childhood disorder, but now it's more and more being seen as an adult disorder as well. Yeah, and the flow through is what, like 40 or 50% from childhood. So you've had it in childhood and about 40 or 50% end up with it in adulthood. Yeah, it's the statistics vary. Some say it's about 15%, others say it's about 50% who experience symptoms into adulthood. And the population prevalence is uh, something like 3, 4, 5%. It varies a lot. Yeah, again, it varies. Children, it's about 5 to 7%, and adults, about 2 to 4%. But the main statistic is 3% of adults will have ADHD. And you spoke to a psychiatrist about this. So I spoke to Dr. Dorgaval Kaitan, who heads the Sydney International ADHD Centre, about what kind of impact ADHD has on adults in particular. Most of the time, untreated ADHD people they function well below their full capacity, not because of intelligence, but because of the ADHD symptoms, such as lack of focus, short-term memory, procrastination, etc., which makes it hard for them, first, to get started, second, stay on the task, and finish the task. So, I mean, what we're talking about here is a spectrum disorder. So we all have inattention at times to time. We all can be impulsive, but it's on a spectrum. And the question is for a clinician, presumably, deciding where on the spectrum you are, whether you cross the line into having a problem. Yeah, so it needs to have a significant impact on your life, which is why it's often picked up in school-aged children, because they can't pay attention, maybe sometimes they're acting out, they're not doing as well as they'd be expected to. And with adults, that's usually seen through work. There are different types of ADHD, though. There's the impulsive hyperactive type, where those Which is the stereotypical one. Yes, that's the young... And more likely to be in boys than girls. Yes, that's the young boy acting out at school, usually picked up by teachers and their parents. Then you've got the inattentive, distractive type. But most people have a combination 
of those. Most people have varying symptoms from each of those types. And the other thing is inability to complete tasks. But it's an incredibly mixed picture. And I think that what people forget is that ADHD is really a construct that a group of American psychiatrists got. They said that you've got this aggregation statistically of symptoms here and it's created a bit of a messiness in terms of diagnosis. Yeah, and there's a lot of overlap with comorbidities as well. So it, it can be really difficult to pick up and especially in adults and especially in adult women because they present differently. And that was definitely the case for Narika. I started reading all this stuff that I had no idea was linked to ADHD like the fact you can hyperfixate on things and neglect normal stuff, like just get sucked into something and forget to eat or not hear people speaking to you because you're focused on something. And I related to all these things and was like, huh, I think maybe I have that, but didn't learn enough to have any idea that it was impacting my life. Now, you hear anecdotally that there are more and more adults coming forward for this diagnosis, even quite late in life. What, in a sense, was Narika's journey here? Yeah, so she actually, probably 10 years ago, said that she'd looked into ADHD, and like she just said, she noticed some of these traits in herself, but she didn't really think about it. Then, about a year ago, she was living with somebody else with ADHD who started to point out to her some of the things that she was doing that were very, very familiar to her. So that's when Narika decided to see a psychologist for an assessment, that psychologist said there had been an increase in adults seeking treatment, but they put that down to awareness. They said more people are learning about the symptoms, more people are coming forward. Dr. Katan said that's what he's seen at his practice as well. There's an influx of people and he's put it down to the media. The media can help a lot because if you broadcast information about any medical condition, including ADHD, it encouraged people to come forward. They may stop think, well, it's not just me. There are other people with the same problems that may have a solution. So Narika didn't think there was a solution until she saw a video online. I think it was a girl in her 20s and it was her first day on medication and she filmed herself before and was like, well, I don't really have much hope for this, but let's see. And then it was like, a second clip she'd taken, she was on the verge of tears and was like, I feel like all the noise in my brain just shut up. Is this what other people feel like all the time? And that for me was like, I've always known there's a whole lot bouncing around in my head and the thought that that could go away was like, okay, I really want to know if this is something that could be helped. Which was obviously good news for Narika. Maybe the media can create a problem, as you can create demand, and you can be you can misunderstand that you may not have the condition, and you create false demand. I mean, I did a four corners on this many years ago, and what I found was that you, there were children with ADHD who were not being treated, children who did not have ADHD who were being treated for it, and there was just general confusion, and you had hot spots around Australia where you had very high rates of diagnosis, higher than the actual prevalence. And I think that the Safety and Quality Commission showed that for under 17-year-olds that situation still exists. There's a lot of variation. There was about a 30% increase in prescriptions for under 17-year-olds across the country, um, and that was the four years leading up to 2017. They, however, didn't point out whether that was just due to more people being diagnosed or if that was because there was misdiagnosis or abuse. 
Obviously, stimulants, they're most widely used for ADHD and they can be very effective. They're usually effective for about 70% of people with ADHD, but they can be abused and they do have side effects such as loss of appetite, mood changes. They can increase or even lower your blood pressure. So they need to be heavily regulated and they are, but the state and territory restrictions are very different. And at the end of the day, it is down to the psychiatrist or the paediatrician to make a call. So there's a lot of variation. In fact, there's been talk with does methylphenidate, with a brand, brand name is called Ritalin, cause an increase in psychosis? And the, the balance of information seems to be no, it doesn't. But some people who may have ADHD or can be drug users, and if they're on amphetamines already, then you, that could be the problem rather than the Ritalin itself. So I, I asked Narika what her experience was like and whether she thought it was really thorough enough to be diagnosed and then given medication. I've heard really varying reports from other people. So I know people who literally go to someone, barely get asked anything and get prescribed medication. The psychiatrist I saw was really thorough in the sense that he felt he recognised it in me within the first 20 minutes and was really validating and even though I had a full report from a clinical psychologist who specialises in ADHD, he said, I do the assessment myself. And so it took us four sessions to run through the proper assessment, but then also run through other mental health things for him to make a decision about prescribing medication. So what about, Shelby, this issue of overdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, or what we found many years ago with, with the Four Corners was, in a sense, misdiagnosis, that you weren't necessarily directing the treatment to the right people. It's really difficult to determine because it is down to the psychiatrist to make a decision. And there is no test that's decisive to say that you have ADHD. There's no brain scan, you know, there's no blood test. It's down to symptoms and the psychiatrist has to make the call. And of course, that will vary from psychiatrist to psychiatrist, which that's been suggested as to be one of the reasons there might be disparities depending on location. I spoke to a prominent voice of ADHD in Australia, Dr. Michelle Toner. She's an ADHD coach, um, and she also has a lot of experience dealing with adults with ADHD. I asked her what her opinion was about whether the disorder is being overdiagnosed. In Western Australia, we have been keeping unidentified data on people diagnosed with ADHD. So we know that currently fewer than 1% of adults in Western Australia are taking medication for ADHD. And if you look at the prevalence rate that we know exists in the world for ADHD, if you look at the conservative prevalence rate, that would be 4%. So ADHD is very underdiagnosed, particularly in adults. And there has been a myth um, perpetrated by the media that there's been overdiagnosis of ADHD, where the facts and figures show differently. There's no opinion about it. And I think there are published data internationally about underdiagnosis rather than overdiagnosis. But that doesn't mean to say that the diagnosis rate is evenly spread across Australia, because you've actually got to have money in your pocket to be able to get the diagnosis and treatment. Yes, exactly. And you have to have the ability to navigate a really confusing system as well. So I looked at that data that Dr. Toner mentioned from the WA Health Department. There and it should be said, the background to the WA Health Department data is that WA was a hotspot for childhood 
um, ADHD prescribing many years ago. Yeah. So it kind of yeah. dates back to that, but carry on, sorry. Yeah, which is exactly why they looked at it with such detail, which is great for us. There were 26,000 patients receiving treatment in WA's metro areas compared with 5,000 in the country. And that matches up with a study from 2007, which found that in metro areas, prescription rates were something like two to five times greater than in remote and very remote areas. So there are disparities depending on location and access to treatment. There's also disparities with gender. Boys and men are much more likely to be diagnosed. For Nareka, looking back, she's actually surprised by this, looking back at her school reports, especially after both the psychologist and her psychiatrist confirmed her suspicions. I thought I was going to have to prove something because they definitely want to look into, they need to see a history that it's something that has been there since you were young and in school early on. And then they both very quickly were like, we can very much see that this is the case for you. And I think the fact that it seemed obvious to them, it really hit me that there was no doubt anymore. And then I kind of got hit with like, how was this not seen? A lot of personal cost involved. It, it is a huge personal cost, especially for people like Nareka, who are being diagnosed in their 30s. You think about going through school, going through university and entering the job market, not being treated for something that can have a really severe impact. There's a less awareness about how this presents for adults and adult females in particular. It's thought that males are more likely to externalise these symptoms with rule breaking, maybe aggression, whereas females are more likely to internalise it with anxiety. And that's another issue is ADHD can be masked by other mental health issues. Sometimes they are being treated for depression, anxiety for a long time before the ADHD is often stumbled upon. But what they're missing on often is education. At school, they're not able to access the curriculum. They get to university and they're dropping out of university and they're often underemployed and working in roles for which they're really overqualified or way too intelligent and feeling very unfulfilled in life. I mean, the underlying theme here is there's just a messiness in all this, in the definition, in how they're evaluating it. So not obviously, you know, costs to society, as well as well as the personal cost of actually getting a consult. Yeah, personal cost and economic cost as well. Cost per patient per year would be $25,000. If you have uh, one million people uh, with ADHD, so the cost will go up to about $22 billion. Obviously, big money there if you accept that. I mean, and I, and I must preface this by saying there are almost no randomised trials here of this treatment in adults, so not very many in children either. So you've got to take it on trust that this is it's kind of a, you, you are your own experiment in a sense. It's very anecdotal, but I suppose, as Narika mentioned with the video that she watched, there are pretty stark differences, pre-medication, post-medication. That's what I mean. If you get the benefit, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And just briefly, what are, what are some of the solutions offered here to get more access to you know, high-quality assessment? So I spoke to Dr. Katan about that. And he said, of course, the cost is massive for people seeing a psychiatrist. It can be up to $800 and you 
probably get a couple hundred of that back. Um, and that's only in the initial appointment. If a psychiatrist does want to do due diligence and do multiple appointments, that could leave you out of pocket $1,200. The cost, yes, it is a problem. And uh, some people cannot afford, that's reality. That's why I think that the public service should offer the service to the community. So Dr. Keitan has suggested we could upskill other psychiatrists because, of course, some psychiatrists do not treat ADHD. He suggested because there's a shortfall of psychiatrists and there's such a demand that they could be upskills to diagnose. He also says that GPs may be able to have greater control. And once you are diagnosed, ADHD is not on the NDIS. So certain people can't get financial support to be able to get the care that they may need, including maybe an ADHD coach like Dr. Tona to help them navigate life with their different brain, essentially. Society needs people who think outside the box. And if we're telling those people they are lazy and I'm not trying hard enough to actually fit in with the world, then we're, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. So bottom line here, we're probably not seeing a genuine rise in ADHD. It's just an increased awareness. There is help available. It's got to be carefully assessed, but um, you know, you'd open up your wallet probably. Yes, it is going and to be not pricey. everybody can. No, exactly. That's, that's where there's a disparity, and that's why Dr. Katan has said maybe the public service could step up to help. But yeah, it can be life-changing for people who benefit from medication. The diagnosis helped in terms of validation hugely. But prior to the diagnosis, kind of assuming that it was true about myself and learning what it meant was very helpful in correcting a lot of stuff that I felt like had given me really low self-esteem because it was a bit of a, oh, there are these things that are difficult for me and it's not necessarily because I'm a shit human. Like, it's actually just different for my brain than it might be for someone else. So that kind of takes away, like, the personal failing aspect of it, which I think then gave me a lot more confidence to be like, oh, I just, I'm going to need different processes. It was great for Narika to have the guts to talk to us and we're inviting comments from you, our audience, on your experience of ADHD in whatever sense. We will follow this up in future health reports. Shelby, thanks very much for uh, putting that together for us. No problem, thanks. This is the Health Report. Organ donation is one of the great miracles of our time. For someone with, say, a failing heart, an otherwise healthy heart from a donor who has died can give them years even decades of life. But that's not to say it's easy. With heart transplants, the organ needs to be in within four or five hours to be viable, a huge logistical challenge for a country the size of Australia. The tide is turning, though, thanks to a new technology keeping hearts viable for longer. One of the first people to receive a heart through this method in Australia is Alex Morianu. The day I knew something wasn't quite right, can probably be traced back to early January in 2022. A lot of people, when they experience heart failure, they experience a steady decline over time. But for me, I was perfectly fine one night. I was actually out with my boyfriend and a few of our friends, and we were out till like 3 a.m. dancing. The next day, though, I could barely walk 10 minutes to the gym. 
I kept having to stop. I kept crouching over because I was in so much pain and felt so nauseous. And from that day, it just never really stopped. Until this particular day, Alex was just a normal, healthy 23-year-old living her best life in Perth. She was working her first full-time job while winding up research from her master's in astrophysics, studying black holes and neutron stars. But within a few weeks, she was in hospital, diagnosed with severe heart failure. The left side of my heart was functioning at about 15% at that time, but the right side of my heart wasn't doing great either. I only spent three weeks out of hospital before I had to go back in, and then I stayed back in hospital. Alex was deteriorating really quickly. On her first day back in hospital, her doctor told her she was going to be listed for an urgent heart transplant. But while she was a good candidate for transplantation, young and otherwise healthy, the weeks just kept ticking by. I started getting really scared. Things were just getting worse and worse for me and the heart wasn't coming. This is the thing about living on the west coast of a big, sparsely populated country like Australia. A transplanted heart starts to deteriorate as soon as it's removed from a donor's body, transported on ice in the same kind of esky as you can buy at your local hardware store. Most of the population, and by extension, most organs that can be donated, are on the east coast. And Perth is usually just too far away for an East Coast donor heart to last until it can be transplanted. Until very recently. We've really only got about four, five, five and a half hours to get it out of the donor and plumbed into the recipient. You think, oh, that's pretty far, but you've got to remember the size of this vast brown land. Professor John Fraser is an intensive care physician and researcher at the Prince Charles and St Andrews Hospitals in Brisbane. His team has just finished the first phase of a clinical trial into a new technology called hypothermic ex vivo perfusion. Hypothermic, as in cold, ex vivo, outside of the body, perfusion. With HEVP, the donor heart is put in a rig that keeps the organ cold, like putting an ice pack on an injured muscle to stop swelling, while pumping blood and a nutrient solution through it. So it's continuously filling the arteries and emptying the veins and clearing out some of the waste product, if you like. It's got oxygen going in, it's got carbon dioxide coming out. The cells, instead of being starved of oxygen and starved of nutrition, are being fed the oxygen and being fed the nutrition. Instead of the four to five hour window of a normal transplant, John and his team showed they could sustain a heart for eight hours and 47 minutes. Not by choice, but because of COVID restrictions slowing down a transfer between states. In the past, if it wasn't for that rig, that donor heart would have not been usable and would have had to be disposed of, which would be a crying shame for the family of the donor, but even more so for the recipient. We're not going to be having to turn hearts down because of the logistics. There's nowhere that there could be a donor heart in Australia or New Zealand that could not be transplanted somewhere in Australia and New Zealand. Working with John Fraser on the research called the Living Heart Project is David McGiffin, who began his career as a cardiothoracic surgeon in the 1980s. It was night and day. You know, when I started heart transplants, it was miserable. You know, the one-year survival was 50%. But we knew it was going to get better. It's sort of nice to be 
book ending my career with this very exciting machine for fusion. Alex was one of 36 people in the first phase of John Fraser and David McGiffin's clinical trial, which has had a 100% survival rate. Her transplanted heart came from the East Coast, something that wouldn't have been possible without the Living Heart Project. I felt the difference almost instantaneously. I felt what blood flow felt like again, as strange as that sounds. Like I felt my blood pulsing in my head, pulsing through my body. My hands were warm and I didn't realise I was lacking that until I woke up and I was like, wow, this feels so different. This first phase of the research looked at hearts from donors who were brain dead but still had beating hearts, the only kind of hearts currently used for transplants. The next phase will look at whether it's possible to use donor hearts that have stopped beating. That's an even bigger number of potential transplant hearts that we could resuscitate and reboot. There's many places across Australia that now can give their organs for transplantation and that's a huge solace for people that have lost someone from their family but at least, you know, thank God someone has benefited from their, their sorrow. As for Alex, it wasn't until after her old heart was replaced that her doctors were able to see what might have caused her sudden heart failure in the first place. They found a buildup of white blood cells in my old heart when it was removed. So I must have caught a virus in the past few years. My immune system must have gotten a bit confused between the virus and my heart and started attacking my heart instead. But because my decline was really, really quick, we think maybe there was a genetic component. But in terms of my fitness, like I'm back at the local gym now, I'm able to do cardio for half an hour, one hour. I feel very fit and healthy again. And yeah, I feel I feel pretty normal, which is crazy because it's been less than a year. Alex Mariano, a heart transplant recipient from Perth. We also heard from Professor John Fraser, intensive care physician from the Prince Charles and St Andrews Hospitals in Brisbane, and cardiothoracic surgeon Professor David McGiffin. And I'm told, Tegan, that they cooked up the grant for this on a cricket pitch. <laughs> yeah, they couldn't find any time when both of them were free and until they found out that Saturday afternoon by one of uh, John Fraser's kids' cricket games was the place, and there's a photo of David McGiffin looking kind of grumpy in a floppy hat, which is just perfect to me. Thanks, Tegan. Sarcomas are relatively rare, but often difficult to treat tumours of the body's soft tissues. And unlike most cancers, tend to appear in younger adults. The Garvin Institute in Sydney has had a world-leading project, which we've covered before on the Health Report, documenting the genetic profiles of people with sarcomas of various kinds. Now, along with an international consortium of researchers, they've identified inherited genes that may cause sarcomas and help with early diagnosis. Professor David Thomas is Head of Genomic Cancer Medicine at the Garvin. Welcome back to the Health Report, David. Nice to be back, Norman. Congratulations on the Australia Day Award. Oh, you're very kind. So, I mean, I've read this paper. It's eye-watering in its complexity. In essence, you've combined family history with a genetic analysis. In other words, often g- genetic studies are sort of blunderbuss. They just look for everything, any genes, anywhere, in a, and it's called a GWAS, a genome-wide association study. But you've really targeted in here. Yes. Well, we used whole genome sequencing, which is um, the most powerful technology we have today to understand what's going on uh, that might cause diseases like sarcoma. And one of the implications of that is that you can combine the approaches we've traditionally used for GWAS 
genome-wide association studies, and the power of family linkage, which is where we've discovered most about cancer genes. And by family linkage, you mean what? Well, when you take a family which is vastly too much cancer um, for chance alone, uh, you can sometimes, by techniques like positional cloning, identify the gene which is being passed through the family that causes each of those individuals to develop cancer. And that's uh, led to some of the most profound breakthroughs in cancer biology over the past 30 or 40 years. And, and you found families where it wasn't necessarily sarcoma that was fought running in these families, but it might have been thyroid cancer or melanoma, for example. Yes. So in the study, we identified two biological pathways that are relatively new. And uh, one of them is uh, called uh, Sheltrin complex. It's, it's the cluster of six proteins that caps the end of our telomeres, like uh, aglets cover the end of our shoelaces. And when you get defects in that, you get risks of sarcoma, melanoma, and thyroid cancer. So they go together. And you also found an, there, was another, there was another defect you found as well? Yes, that was a surprise. So our studies identified the extensive complex machinery that regulates cell division seems to be a point of vulnerability um, for patients with sarcomas as well. Um, these are the proteins that cause a cell to divide and separate uh, their duplicated DNA. And um, that's not been previously linked to cancer before. And of course, to find out whether it was significant, you compared this to people who had, had, had very little history of cancer in their family. Yes, that was one of the interesting technical advantages that we had. We had uh, the Medical Genome Reference Bank, which we created a few years ago. This is a cohort of more than 3,000 elderly well Australians who uh, never had cancer, never had heart disease, never had dementia, and who therefore act as a kind of super control set. Do, does sarcoma run strongly in families? Because, I mean, this is where these studies can become confusing. Oh, yes. So this is the thing. It's a, a rare disease, so it's been relatively understudied. But, for example, one in five sarcoma patients gets a second cancer, and that's about one in 10 in the general population. And about uh, 15 to 20% of the sarcoma population seems to have recognisable syndromes, even though they just walk in through the door um, unselected for family history. And what, so certainly. and what this study suggests is that the, the second cancer is not due to the treatment of the first cancer. It's actually genetic. Now, one of the things about finding genetic abnormalities that might predict cancer is whether or not you've got a treatment that could actually intervene. In other words, they're called actionable genes. Were any of these findings actionable? In other words, you had treatment on the shelf that could be used that you hadn't thought of? Yes. So amongst the genes that we've already known about, like the genes that cause mismatch repair, which are predicted which predict response to immunotherapies, for example. We find certainly a certain number of sarcoma patients carry them, as well as genes that predict response to drugs like PARP inhibitors. But these new pathways may open up new possibilities for treatment uh, through similar synthetic lethal approaches. Um, I can explain what you, I mean by that cryptic word if you want. Well, in other words, you, you, you know what the defect is and you might be able to design a drug which attacks it. Precisely, yep. And what about diagnosis? Because one of the things you claim from this is that it might actually help with early diagnosis. Yes. Well, if you know who's at risk, um, and there are 21,000 Australians today who are living uh, after a diagnosis of sarcoma, for those Australians who might have been cured from their sarcoma, we want to know who's at risk of developing a second cancer. And this study has opened up a, you know, maybe one in eight, one in 12 of the, those individuals might carry something that increases their risk of having cancer and therefore enable us to personalise risk management. Now, sarcoma is devilishly difficult to treat. How do people go with their second cancers? 
which might well, not be a sarcoma at all. That's that's right. I mean, in, in the leaf from any population, we've developed techniques which like which is an inherited disorder. That's right, uh, caused by the most strongly linked gene to sarcomas, p53. So people with leaf from any syndrome have one in three of them get a sarcoma, but another one in three develop breast cancer, for example. And uh, there are lots of techniques that we're developing right now to try and pick up those cancers early at a curable stage. Now, these two abnormalities, which have not been necessarily linked to other cancers, so this is in, in, in how the cells divide and in this sort of protective mechanism at the end of the chromosomes, the, the telomere, is this applicable to other cancers or do you not know that yet? I mean, apart from the cancers that you've found with thyroid melanoma and so on, how b broadly applicable is this? It could be quite broadly applicable, um, but it's interesting how specific these inheritance patterns are. In other words, the genes that predispose us towards breast cancer are not the same as those that predispose us for bowel cancer, for example. And by the study of patients with sarcoma, we've opened up um, entirely new insights into cancer biology. We don't know precisely how broadly these genes may be relevant to other cancer types, but we certainly do see um, patterns of excess cancers of multiple types in these families. So we'll, we'll learn more with time. And in a practical sense, if somebody's listening to this and they've got a, a close family member, say a first degree relative with sarcoma, should you be coming forward for testing of any kind? I think if you've got a concern, it's always worth raising that with your doctor. There are clinical genetics uh, clinics where you can have your questions answered. I would say that it's still a minority of patients who do carry these what we call highly penetrant syndromes. These are where you have a very high risk of having cancer. But uh, it's as much about the biology as it is about understanding um, you know, what can be done with, for an individual patient. I, I think if you want a number, about one in 10 people will carry a gene that explains why they develop cancer and for which we may one day develop a, a good management plan. First step, though, is collecting the data, which is what you and your colleagues have done. Exactly. And uh, for a rare disease, it's had to be a global collaboration well, congratulations and thanks for coming back onto the programme. Thanks, Norman, for the time. Professor David Thomas of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Sydney. And that's a health report for this week, don't you think, Tegan? I think that might be where we should leave it. See you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.